We're reading all of chapter 2 of Galatians, uh, page 823. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me, God does not judge by ex external appearance. Those man, men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they say they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those you reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have 
puts our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live is in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Good morning. It's great to be together. Uh, my name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here, if I haven't met you, and if you're visiting, uh, it's especially great to have you along today. We've been doing a series on Galatians, which we started last week, and um, we saw last week that Paul's writing to the churches in the region of Galatia, and he's astonished that they're so quickly deserting God. But I reckon that they would have been absolutely astonished themselves, bewildered, that Paul accuses them of such a thing. In their minds, they're not abandoning God. In their minds, they were taking God incredibly seriously, so seriously that they're prepared to get circumcised. Now, circumcision probably sounds a little bit strange to us. Um, These days, we don't really hear about it that much. In our culture, it's not really the done thing. Um, occasionally for medical reasons it might be. My mum actually met my dad when she was studying a subject at a uh, Salvation Army Bible College. She was from a farm in Queensland. I'm not making any judgment calls there. I don't think I need to. She wasn't from a Christian home and the first conversation she ever had with my dad was asking him what does circumcision mean? She'd read it and she didn't know. Now, I imagine it would have been awkward, just like when your parents feel they need to tell you these kind of stories. Anyway, just in case we're not 100% crystal clear, which would be fair enough, on what circumcision is, let me very briefly explain it. It's basically cutting off the foreskin of the penis. Now, I can kind of see from the pained expression of some of the men here that they're asking, why would the Galatians even think about doing that? Well, the answer is because some people were telling them that to be true followers of God, to belong to him, they needed to do this. And so the next obvious question is, why would people tell the Galatians that God required them to be circumcised? And the answer is because that's what God required of his people in the Old Testament. It's what he required in the law along with all sorts of other things that would mark out his people as being different from every other nation around them, like they went to never eat pork as well. And so the next final question that's obvious to ask is, why would God require circumcision of his people? 
And the answer is because circumcision was a powerful marker. It was a pretty significant, permanent, and personal sign that you were an Israelite, and so you belonged to God. But the Galatians weren't Israelites. They were non-Jewish, what the Bible calls Gentiles, like most of us here. And through Paul, they'd heard the gospel message about Jesus. And even though they're not Jewish, they'd become followers of Jesus. But along the way, some Jewish followers of Jesus have come along and they've said, it's great that you've got Jesus, but if you truly want to belong to God, you've got to do what he says and be circumcised and follow the other laws too. Now, at some point, the Galatians say, that sounds great and all, but just wait a sec, just put that down. Before we do that, when Paul was here, he seemed to say it was okay for us to remain uncircumcised. In fact, Paul had uncircumcised helpers with him, like Titus, yeah. And Paul even ate with us. And so these Jewish Christians say, Ah, Paul, yes. Let me tell you about Paul. Paul's a slightly confused follower of the true apostles. He's not really an apostle himself, you know. He got the gospel message from the apostles, but he got it a bit messed up. He means well, though. He's a feisty little fellow, isn't he? So the message gets back to Paul that the Galatians are considering circumcision. And Paul doesn't congratulate them for their devotion to God. Instead, have a look at what Paul writes at the very beginning of this letter. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. And then he explains that he didn't get the, the gospel from the apostles, actually. He got it straight from Jesus. He's not their disciple. He's their colleague. Now, that was all last week. This week, we get to the heart of the issue. Because this week, Paul outlines exactly why circumcision is actually suicide for their faith. Look at what, how he puts it in Galatians 5.2. He says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. This is serious stuff. So let's get into chapter 2 and see if we can see exactly what's going on. Chapter 2 continues Paul's argument. He's saying not only is he a true apostle, not only did he get the message about Jesus straight from Jesus, but on top of all of this, his gospel message actually agrees with the other apostles. Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he takes Titus with him. Now, this is really important. I'm not sure if Paul fully briefed Titus before this trip. I'm not sure if he took him aside and said, Titus, I'm not sure if all of you will be making the return trip or not. But in case you've missed what, what's happening in the passage here, basically Titus is the canary in the coal mine. Some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are saying, Gentiles have got to be circumcised and they've got to obey the law. And Titus is a Gentile. And now he's in Jerusalem and whether he knows it or not, all eyes are on him. He's the test case. 
Have a look at what Paul writes about this meeting, verse 3. He writes, Yet not even Titus, was, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. The fate of the gospel was potentially at stake in this meeting. But Paul fought for it. Paul fought for the freedom that the gospel brings. Because if the gospel doesn't bring freedom from all other requirements, then it's not the true gospel. And his point to the Galatians is that the other apostles fought for the gospel too. James, Peter and John, they were all in agreement on this. So in verse 6 he says, Those men added nothing to my message. And in verse 7, On the contrary, they saw that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as, as Peter had to the Jews. But even though all the apostles agreed that the Gentiles shouldn't be forced to obey the law, that didn't completely clear up the issue. See, what about if you looked at it from the other side? What if you were a Jew? Was it okay for you to live like a Gentile then? Was it okay for you to leave circumcision and the law behind? Well, that's exactly where Paul goes next. Probably because those pushing circumcision in Galatia are saying, well, you know, Paul and Peter had a colossal falling out, don't you? And Peter told off Paul for not obeying the law. So Paul sets the record straight. He tells them about the fight that really happened in Antioch. And he says it was him who was telling Peter off. In Antioch, there was a cutting-edge kind of church where Jews and Gentiles were living side by side, even eating together. Peter comes for an extended visit to Antioch, and while he's there, he joins in this cutting-edge expression of the freedom that we have in Jesus. He leaves behind the law and, and he eats with Gentiles. Now, it's hard to stress just how radical it is for a Jew to set aside the law and make this change. See, what would it take for you to change from supporting Port Adelaide to supporting the Crows? Actually, that's a bad example, isn't it? Wouldn't take much. <laughs> a meat pie, a moment of clarity, a trip to the dentist. Let me give you a better example. What would it take for you to go from supporting the Crows to supporting Port Adelaide? Now, I know for a lot of you here, that would be really hard for you to imagine, really difficult. And yet, making that kind of, of change is nothing compared to the kind of thinking it was for a Jew to eat with a Gentile. Asking a Jew to eat with a Gentile is more like asking yourself, what would it take for you to buy a plane ticket to Turkey and cross the border to fight with ISIS? Now, the kind of mental horror, the mental resistance that you have at, at that idea that I, that I guess that you're feeling is much closer to what it would have been like for Peter and the other Jews 
the first time they left the law behind and ate with Gentiles. But Paul and Peter and other Jewish Christians made the change. The gospel about Jesus was such a powerful, unifying force. And by eating with Gentiles, not only were the apostles saying that a Gentile didn't need to follow the law, they were also saying the flip side, weren't they? They were saying that a Jew didn't need to follow the law too. But something goes wrong. Look at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, on on first reading, it, it sounds like the Apostle James has sent his thugs to break up the party. And Peter's afraid of them. And so he goes along with them. But that assumes that the men who came from James are the same people as the circumcision group. It could be instead that James sent these men to Antioch to warn Peter that the circumcision group is really causing trouble back in Jerusalem. And so it might be a good idea to temporarily stop eating with Gentiles as a kind of strategic move to help things calm down a bit. That would sound fair enough, wouldn't it? Not to Paul. We don't get the full picture. But whatever was the case, even if there were good motivations, Paul doesn't hold back his criticism. Look at the words he uses. Verse 11, I opposed him to his face. He was clearly in the wrong. Verse 13, his hypocrisy led astray. And verse 14 contains the heart of the issue. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter was denying the gospel, not in what he said, but in what he was doing. Whether he realized it or not, his actions were contradicting the truth of the gospel. Why? Well, Paul explains why to Peter's face in front of them all. That's the rest of chapter 2. And then in the rest of the book of Galatians, he explains why if they accept the law, they're contradicting the gospel and rejecting Jesus. Let's have a look at his logic. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified. And before we go on, we've really got to make sure we we get that word. Justified means to be considered righteous in God's eyes, to be right with God. So a man is not right with God by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. How do you belong to God? How are you right with God? Well, in our culture, we might answer all sorts of things. Some might think it's pretty easy to be right with God. You know, just don't kill anyone or do anything really terrible and you're right with God. Or just believe he exists and do a couple of religious things and you're right. Others, on the other hand, might see it as pretty hard to be right with God. You've got to do a lot of good things. You've got to be thoroughly religious. 
the Jewish people would have said, you have to be born Jewish or become Jewish. And you've got to live faithfully as a Jew. So you had to keep the law. None of that is what the gospel says will make you right with God. God says to us in the gospel, the only way to be right with me is through faith in Jesus. Paul, Peter, and and every true Christian knows this. There's no difference in the end between a Jew and a Gentile. Look at verse 16. So we too, us Jews, he's saying, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Let me show you what he's saying so far in a diagram. The gospel tells us no one will be justified by keeping the law. That's what you can kind of see there. It doesn't lead to justification. Instead, the only way to be justified, to be right with God, is through faith in Christ. And this is true for Jews and for Gentiles. Now Paul goes on and see if you can follow his logic in verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Now, I don't know if you're able to follow, follow the logic there, but I find this a really hard verse to understand. So let's have a look at the first part, the question first. Paul and Peter as Jews, they come to realize that they can only be right with God by Jesus. And what this means is that they realize that even though they have the law, they're not able to keep the law. They themselves are sinners just like the Gentiles who don't have the law. That's what they're admitting when they, when, they cut, when they look to Jesus to make them right with God. Let me show you on the diagram again. See, the law just shows them that they're sinners and that they need Jesus. And on top of this, by looking to Jesus, they come to realize that they can't look to the law. It's not going to help them. And so they leave the law behind and do stuff like eat with Gentiles, things that would mean that the law would label them a sinner. So doesn't that mean then that Jesus promotes sin? Because he saves people who are sinners. And he saves people from having to keep the law. Paul's answer is absolutely not. Jesus is a servant of sinners... But he's not a servant of sin. He's not holding sin itself up as some kind of good thing. He frees people from the law so that it no longer has any reference to how they live. They have a new and more powerful reference point. So Paul and Peter have realized they're sinners because they couldn't keep the law when they were trying to. And since they've come to Jesus, they're not even trying to. So then Paul goes on to say in verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. See, it's actually by going back to the law, going back to trying to be right with God by the law, that all you achieve is demonstrate beyond a doubt that you're a lawbreaker, a sinner, 
Because that's what the law does. And it especially does it when you've just been eating with Gentiles and breaking the law and then try to come back under it. The law could never justify you. It was never meant to deal with sin. The law was only ever meant to identify and limit sin. And it's not going to offer any shelter if you go back to it. It's a prison, not a shelter, as we'll see next week. Let me show you on the diagram again. If you have faith in Christ, but then you try to add the law to that, you move right, then all we're doing is we're showing that we don't really have faith in Christ and we're just proving that we're sinners who are not right with God. The only option that will make us right with God is to have faith in Jesus and that means the law is dead to us. Actually, it says we're dead to the law. We're dead even to ourselves, it says. Our life before God is entirely held in the hands of Jesus. And while ever I'm in his hands, I'm completely safe. Which means the life I live now is, is not motivated by trying to be right with God. That's already done in Jesus. I am right with God. Instead, it's motivated by what Jesus has done for me. His love. His sacrifice. That's my only reference point. Now, Peter might not have seen that he was adding to Christ. He might not have realized that he was causing people to put their confidence in something that couldn't help them. But his actions were doing just that. Look at Paul's little summary at the end in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What this means by implication is that if righteousness could be gained by any means other than Christ, then Christ died for nothing. To put your confidence in anything other than Jesus to make you right with God is actually to spit on the death of Jesus as an unnecessary waste. It's to say, it's okay, Jesus. I've got this covered. Thanks for thinking that you needed to die for me, though. When it comes to us being right with God, Jesus does it all. It's all by grace. And it's not okay to require anything other than faith in Jesus. Now, Paul thought the Galatians already got this. And so he's astonished to hear that the Galatians are even considering circumcision. And so they needed to hear that adding anything to Christ is actually abandoning Christ. We need to hear this too. Not because our issue is to, tempt, to be tempted to think that the law will justify us. Circumcision isn't all that tempting for us, I don't think. But we have our own set of things that we're tempted to add. What does someone need to truly belong to God? What do you need to be right with God? The answer is faith in Jesus. But actually, that's not the answer, is it? It's faith in Jesus and therefore nothing else. So we need to ask ourselves, what else 
are we tempted to require in, in what we say or do? And that's a really hard answer, uh, question to answer because it's so easy to have blind spots. Peter shows that, doesn't he? It's easier to sort of throw stones at other people than to look in the mirror. But just as I get to the last bit of this sermon, I'm going to throw a couple of stones in the hope that it will actually help us look at the mirror, in the mirror ourselves. The first stone I want to throw is a historical example. I'm talking about 19, 1950s kind of stereotypical Christianity, you know, who maybe by their actions required you to perform in a certain way to be considered acceptable to God. You couldn't drink alcohol. You couldn't go to the movies. You couldn't dance. Now, I'm sure they never went as far as saying that you needed Jesus plus their, their subculture. But I think it was probably implied. And this has the potential to still be with us today. We inevitably form a subculture as Christians. And that's not terrible until we start to imply that that subculture is required to be acceptable to each other and to God. What would it be for us? Do we imply to the smoker that he's got to stop smoking to truly belong to God? I hope not. Do we imply that people have got to like certain shows, talk a certain way, dress a certain way? I don't think so. But it's probably worth us just staying mindful of this. I'm going to throw another stone, a different kind of stone. When I was at uni, some friends were getting baptized. And another friend who'd been baptized as a child said, maybe I should get baptized too, just in case. And the minister said, if you're doing it just in case, then I'm not going to baptize you. Just in case what? Just in case faith in Jesus is not enough? Now, my friend probably didn't mean it quite like that. But so easily our minds can think we better do religious things, better get to church, better have communion, better read our Bibles, better do Christiany things just in case. Just in case what? Could it be that subconsciously we're thinking just in case faith in Jesus is not enough? Let me throw one more stone. I grew up going to churches where every so often I'd meet someone who'd say, it's great that you have Jesus. But do you have the Holy Spirit? I didn't realize at the time just what a horrible thing that question implies. They might not have meant it, but the only logical conclusion of that question is that faith in Jesus is not enough. Now, I've heard people, including family, try to justify it differently. But if you require anything other than faith in Jesus for someone to be a full equal, spirit-filled Christian, you're on really dangerous ground. Let me finish with a couple of diagnostic questions that can help us to see whether or not we've fully embraced the grace and freedom that the gospel offers us in Jesus. Here's the first one. If you died tonight, where would you go? It's a question I ask my kids from time to time. And if it's been a space of more than a couple of months, they usually get it wrong. Not so much this one, but the next one. 
Would you go to heaven? If you really get grace and you have faith in Jesus, you'll know that the answer is always, always, yes. No matter what. No matter what you've done, just plain no matter what. Here's the second. The ones that my kids struggle with every so often. If Jesus met you at the gate at heaven and asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Because I, because I what? When you see the implications of grace properly, you realize that there's nothing that you could possibly say after that. The closest you could get would be to say, because I have faith. But even that's not quite right. Because it's not your faith that makes you right with God. It's Jesus. Once you fully get grace, you realize that the only answer you could ever give to this question, why should I let you into heaven, is because you. Because you loved me and died for me. No other answer is valid. No other answer is needed. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the freedom that you've given us in Jesus. That when we trust in him and trust in him alone, we don't need anything else to make us right with you. You've done it all in him. We don't need to know any fear that you might not accept us. We don't need to dread any punishment because there is none. We thank you so much for that freedom. Lord, help us to embrace it fully. To see where we're tempted to deny ourselves that freedom or deny others that freedom. Lord, open our hearts more and more to your gospel message and help us to always dwell as your children, celebrating this freedom that we have in Jesus. And we ask it in his name and in his name alone. Amen.